Great to be here with you all today. Beautiful morning. And uh, yeah, if you would open your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9, the very last section of Luke 9, verses 57 to 62. If you do not have a Bible, there are scattered around the worship center here Bibles under the seats in front of you, the black books there. Luke 9, starting in verse 57. It says this, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Giving yourself halfway to things usually doesn't work out so well. If you're going to jump off a cliff, if you ever, ever jumped off a cliff into a lake or a river, it doesn't work to like hold on to a branch while you're doing it or kind of... Go hesitantly. You, you got to just go all the way, right? Or have you ever tried to talk to your spouse when they're halfway listening? They're watching something or reading something. My, my wife will come and start talking to me, and I'm reading a book, and suddenly I have to stop and say, I have no idea what you just said the last two minutes, right? Anybody else experience that? Or we've all seen the fail videos, right, where um, the person, there's a boat and a dock, right? And a person has, a a guy has his, it's usually a guy for some reason, I don't know why, but because guys aren't very smart, I guess. But they they have a foot on each one, a foot on the dock and a foot on the boat, and the boat is slowly moving away from the dock, and it just doesn't work well, right? And yet, sometimes people try to do this with Jesus. As if you could be halfway in with Jesus. As if you could ask Jesus to kind of share space on the throne of your heart with other things. And our passage this morning is a call away from that. It's a call to really wholehearted faith. It's a call to follow Jesus. That's the language we find in our passage. It's a language of following, right? We see it in verse 57. Where someone says, I will follow you, in verse 59, Jesus himself says, follow me. And then again in verse 61, where a man comes up to him and says, I will follow you. It's, it's language of following. And when we think of following, often we think of, of social media. Or perhaps YouTube or something. It's, it, it, maybe we follow an athlete's career. It's... It's rather trivial following. It's following from a distance. It's impersonal following. 
But what we're talking about here is something very different. The language seems to have been taken from traditions of first century Judaism where a person would attach themselves often to a particular rabbi or teacher. And they would literally, physically follow that rabbi. They would follow him around town, follow him to synagogue. They would seek to imitate them and, and listen and learn from his teaching and then spread that teaching. With Jesus, this call to following was not just a call to follow his teaching or lifestyle. It was a call to himself. It was a call to comprehensive, wholehearted faith in him. And this morning, we want to dig into what that means. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to have genuine, wholehearted faith in him? We're going to look at two points. Number one, exposing disordered priorities. And number two, calling for wholehearted faith. So number one, exposing disordered priorities. In each of these three little episodes here, at the end of Luke 9, there is something that is taking precedence over Jesus. There is some priority that is put before him, some other love, some other God, really. Now, what's interesting in this is that the, each man's words would say something different, right? Did you notice their words? They call Jesus Lord. Their words say Lord, right? And then they, they express even, at least two of them, this desire to follow you. I will follow you, right? So they're saying with their words, Lord, I want to follow you. But in reality, there is something else they really want to follow before Jesus. And Jesus, in, this, in, in these three little episodes, what he does is, with the skill of like a master surgeon, he exposes what it is that these men are prioritizing above and over Jesus Christ. And his, what, what he does here is, is really stunning, and it's a little terrifying. Because here's what we want. We want Jesus to do the same thing for us. To expose what it is that we're tempted to put before him. So, let's look at these episodes briefly. In the first episode, you look at this man and it's not immediately clear what it is that he's putting before Jesus. I mean, he says, I will follow you wherever you go, right? That seems good, right? In fact, it make, might make you think of Ruth in the Old Testament, who seems to be put forward as an example of, of wholehearted devotion, right? But there is something missing in this man's statement, and there is something that Jesus' response indicates is wrong with this man's statement. You see, Jesus' response to this man gives us a clue that he isn't actually expressing a willingness to go anywhere with Jesus. He's more expressing an expectation that Jesus is going to take him somewhere. Probably he's expecting Jesus to take him to some sort of palace. I think we could probably read this remembering the messianic expectations that were so common, right? 
that Jesus, the Messiah, and as people identified Jesus as the Messiah, they were expecting what? They were expecting political triumph and overthrowing the Romans and power, right? Prestige and influence. It seems likely to me that that's where this man expected Jesus to take him. I'll go with you anywhere. Right? Like to the palace that you're going to occupy in a couple of weeks. Right, Jesus? It's like athletes who get drafted into the NBA. Suddenly, they have all sorts of friends that have undying loyalty. and They have family members they never knew existed, right? I think that might be what's going on here. A more favorable reading for this guy might be that he just wanted a home, some sort of security. But regardless, Jesus is clear that that's not part of the deal. Look at his words in verse 58. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What does Jesus say? He's saying, look, you're expecting acceptance, acclaim, prestige, power. You're expecting security. And guess what? That's the last thing you're going to get if you follow me. I do not headed down that road of power and glory right now. I'm headed down a road to what? The cross. That's the context of Luke 9 here, right? They're going along the road. Where are they going? They're going to Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? Jesus is going to die. Jesus is being clear that instead of being welcomed, he's going to be rejected. Instead of being crowned, he's going to be crucified. And if you're going to follow Jesus, that's the path you're going to take too. Jesus' words expose this man's expectations. He's coming to Jesus with, the, with a kind of distorted faith that is expecting Jesus to do what he wants, to give him his idol. What he's really after is the security, the safety, the fame, the power. Jesus is somewhere down the line in second place. In fact, Jesus is more a means to an end of getting what this man really wants. So Jesus exposes. He says, no, that's not the way this works. You cannot come to me prioritizing all of these other things above me. Look at verse 59 now in the second episode. Jesus, in this case, he takes the initiative and he calls this man and he says, follow me. And the man re responds with a request. He says, first, let me go and bury my father. Okay, seems reasonable. Your father died. You want to bury him? Okay. And, and, and again, what we're left with is, is understanding that there's something here going wrong. Jesus' response, again, indicates that there's probably more going on here. He tells this man, go let the dead bury their dead. Probably a reference to having those who are spiritually dead go bury the physically dead. He says, you, I'm calling you to be alive to me and to my kingdom. And for that to be your overriding priority and devotion... These people over here, they're dead to me in my kingdom. Let them take care of the burial stuff. You have different priorities now. Some have wondered if 
this guy's father had even died yet. Maybe his father was simply up in age. It doesn't say that he had necessarily died recently. He might have just been a little older, and the guy was like, well, hey, give me a couple more years. I think my dad's going to die, then I can get my inheritance and make sure I, I take care of all that stuff, right? That's a possibility here. Another one the commentators put forth is, is the reality that there were, there were traditions in, in, in burial customs that were multi-staged. And sometimes after the actual death, it could take up to a year before the final stage of burial was completed. One way or another, this guy is putting Jesus off. His priorities are disordered. In this case, it's, it's not necessarily security, safety, or power. In this case, it is perhaps traditions, cultural norms, maybe wealth that he puts before is this you? Yes, I want to follow you, Jesus, but first let me do what my friends out in the world are doing. Yeah, first, yeah, I want to follow you, Jesus, but first let my, you know, I got to make my parents happy, God. Yeah, I, I want to follow you, Jesus, but first I need to get my finances secure. I got to get my bank account in the right place and have, have all this stuff set. Listen, if there is some kind of yes but first in your heart when it comes to following Jesus, then something's wrong. There is no yes but first when you come to Jesus. Jesus must be first. Look at the third episode now. Again, what is Jesus doing here? He's exposing their heart. Their idols, their disordered priorities. Again, we find a man approaching Jesus, declaring his intention to follow Jesus, calling him Lord. But again, there's a qualification. Verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus responds with some rather hard-sounding words. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now this imagery of, of putting a hand to the plow and looking back, it would have been proverbial in this agrarian society. For us, not so much. But the idea simply is this. You're, you're working a plow, and a plow is this you know, metal in, in, as we think of it, a, a metal-shaped, you know, V-shaped thing that you put in the ground, and it's got a, a handle up that comes up from it, and an oxen would pull it, or maybe a team of oxen, and pull it, and you've got to guide it, right? And as you're guiding it, you've you got to pay attention in order to keep this thing straight. If you look back, it starts going all over the place. This is like when you're a new driver, and you go to look over your shoulder, and suddenly you're in the other lane. You ever do that? that? That's the idea here. I've taught some new drivers. It's, it's a common thing. So That's what's going on here. And what Jesus is saying is that if this guy is looking back, if his heart is constantly looking back to his family, He's not going to be intent or able to follow Jesus and do the work that Jesus is calling him to do. He's going to be swerving off track. Now, this is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, isn't family good? 
I mean, normally Christians are known as the people who are all about family and family values and so forth, right? In fact, God kind of created the family, didn't he, right? We would say that. Go back to Genesis, Genesis 2 and 3. You've got God creating the family. He's pro-family. We've got all kinds of commands calling us to love our family. The problem here is not a love of family. It's an idolization of family. It's not a caring for our families or valuing our families. It's a prioritizing our families over Jesus. Listen, it's possible to love your family too much. It's possible to worship functionally your spouse. It's possible to put your children before Jesus. Have you ever considered that to be a danger? A problem? Have you ever kind of watched your heart guarded against that? That you might put your children before Jesus? Or put your spouse above him? It's a danger. The question, I don't know if you've noticed this, in every one of these episodes is, what has your heart? What has your heart? What is it that is in that supreme place? What is it that is your ultimate priority? If you're not a Christian yet, This is a question of what is keeping you from Jesus. What is it that you refuse to turn away from because you are more committed to that thing or person or dream or value than you are committed to Jesus Christ? So if you're a Christian, it's a question, or not a Christian, it's a question of what's keeping you from Jesus. If you are a Christian, it's A question of what are you tempted to value above Jesus? In some sense, as we'll see, a Christian is someone who has turned from all of these idols and sin to Jesus, to a wholehearted faith. We are tempted again and again to kind of smuggle these other things back into our lives. To slide them in before Jesus here and there. One of the striking things as we think about this, as Jesus exposes our hearts and shows us what we put in priority before him, one of the striking things is that often it's not the evil bad things, right, that we put before Jesus. Often it is the good things that we put before Jesus. The things other people will applaud you for. Yes, you love your kids. I'm going to clap for you, right? But if you put them before Jesus, There is something seriously wrong. So what is it for you? Maybe it's your family or your culture or your career path. Maybe it's simply being comfortable. Or maybe it's having a sense of control over your life. Maybe it's a romantic relationship. Maybe it's your favorite cause. Or your own sense of rightness or being needed. Being accepted. Maybe it's some sin you don't want to let go of. For all of us, there are things we are tempted to grasp after and hold on to instead of Jesus. 
There's a scene towards the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And in the movie, they're searching for the Holy Grail, right? The, the cup that supposedly Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper. And, uh, and, and so they're searching the whole movie for it. They find it. And towards the end of the movie, they're trying to get it out of this temple area, this mountain, whatever, cave. And as they, they try to run out of, of this area with the, this Holy Grail, this archaeological treasure, there's this massive earthquake and this chasm opens up and, and the Grail is, is lost from someone's grip and it falls onto this ledge down in this chasm. And, and the Grail is sitting there. It's this treasure they wanted so badly. And, and, and it, it, as the scene progresses, Elsa, not, not frozen Elsa, uh, this is the... Uh, archaeological professor Elsa, a different one. Um, she won't let it go, is the thing. Uh, but, <laughs> but she ends up on the ledge, reaching out to try to grab the Holy Grail. And she's holding on to Indy's hand, right? If you've seen the movie. And, and he tells her, you have to let go. You're going to slip. You have to, give me your other hand. Give me your other hand. I'm gonna, you're going to slip. And she keeps reaching for this grail, right? And she will, not, she will not stop grasping after that grail. And in the end, she slips and falls into the chasm to her death. That is a picture of the person who chooses to grasp after these lesser things instead of Jesus. It's a picture of the one who will not turn from their disordered priorities. So Jesus calls us away from and he exposes our disordered priorities. Number two, he calls for wholehearted faith. One of the striking things in these verses to me is how Jesus responds so differently than most of us would. Think if somebody came to you and says, I want to follow you, Tim. I'd say, that's great. I do have lots of wisdom, don't I? And, you know, I, I, I could set up my YouTube channel and I have another follower. And pretty soon I could monetize it and make money. We'd just be welcoming followers, right? I don't know. Maybe you wouldn't. It's just me. But, um, but here Jesus does something different. You almost get the sense that he doesn't want people to follow him. He's putting obstacles in the way. And in a sense, you'd be right if you thought that. Jesus doesn't want halfway followers. He will not be an accessory or an add-on to your life. He will not be a label that you just put on when it's convenient. Jesus cannot and will not be one of many priorities. He is the priority. He is calling us to unrivaled, wholehearted faith. Now this can take you back a little, right? Like imagine if another person in your life, besides Jesus, made these kind of demands on you. You'd kind of be like, whoa, this, is, I, this might be toxic even. Like this is a little demanding, Jesus, right? And that might be true if Jesus is just another teacher. Might be true if Jesus is just kind of an idea out there. But it is 
completely logical and the only thing that makes sense if Jesus is who he said he is. Think about this for a minute. This kind of devotion, wholehearted, unrivaled, comprehensive, makes complete sense in light of what we find out about Jesus, even just in the book of Luke. Think about the book of Luke for a second. In Luke 1, Jesus is told, or Mary is told that she is going to give birth to the Son of the Most High, who, who will receive the throne of his father David and will reign forever. Okay, now maybe we're getting why Jesus says nothing else can have this place, right? Why he deserves this place in your heart. At Jesus' birth, the angels announce him as the Savior, the Christ. The shepherds worship him. The prophecies are fulfilled. Then you have John the Baptist who declares that he is the mightier one to come and that, that John is not even worthy to untie the straps of Jesus' sandals, right? In Luke 4, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus declares himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah. He is the promised one. And then in the following chapters, think about some of the things Jesus does. He heals the sick and cleanses lepers and casts out demons and raises the dead, commands the wind, feeds the multitudes, and so on. You kind of get the sense that maybe he deserves everything from us. Every part of us. Then there's the context just here in Luke 9. In verse 20, you have this interchange with the disciples where Jesus asks, well, who do people say that I am? And, and then eventually he asks and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. He's the anointed Messiah. And then look just a few verses later in verse 28. We have the transfiguration where Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And the veil is pulled back and the glory of Jesus is revealed. And the father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Okay, are you getting the sense of why it makes complete sense? Why it's the only thing that makes sense to give Jesus the ultimate priority in your heart and life? Then you could look forward, right, to the cross. And on this side of the cross, we get to look forward and say, well, he gave his life for me. He died for me. He took my sin on himself and bore the wrath I deserved in my place. And I'm forgiven. He takes care of every accusation against me. And he reconciles me to the Father. And then he rose again. Conquering death, breaking through into new life. Can you see that Jesus deserves more than a role as your part-time consultant? Or your favorite hobby? When you see Jesus for who he is, the only thing that makes sense is to give him everything. Your entire self, every part of you, every moment of your life. The only thing that makes sense is unrivaled, comprehensive, wholehearted faith. Jesus, I need you. Here's all of me. I need you. I must have you. Listen to Matthew 13, verse 44. 
Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He throws away other, other gods, other pet sins, other ultimate priorities. And he says, I, Jesus is worth everything to me. Last weekend, our family was at a wedding up north for our friends Charity and Josh. And when Josh saw Charity walk down the aisle, he didn't just decide to add Charity to his list of girlfriends. He gave himself to her in an exclusive marriage covenant. What are the words? Forsaking all others. That's us. When the Spirit removes the veil and shines the light of the glory of Christ into our hearts, we see him for who he is. And we forsake all others. And we give our whole selves to him in faith. We count everything else as loss, as Paul says in Philippians, for the sake of what? Knowing him and being found in him. We realize that if we lost everything and still had Jesus, we'd have all we need. Here again is the question, is this how we see Jesus? You might be sitting here and realizing you've never seen Jesus this way. He has always been more of an idea out there to you, or a hobby, or a kind of support for you, a helper for what you really live for, kind of an aid. If this is you, if you've never come to Jesus with wholehearted faith, we want to invite you to let go of all of your idols, all of the lesser trivial things, and come to Jesus. This isn't a matter of doing something so that Jesus will accept you. It's not a matter of sacrificing enough so that he pats you on the head and, and welcomes you in. Now, this is just a matter of you can't come to Jesus still holding on to your treasures. You have to let go of all of that stuff and grasp him with everything you are. If that's you, ask Jesus right now to open your eyes, to capture your heart, to forgive you, to make you his. Ask him. He will. And if that's you, we would love to talk to you. Come talk to someone next to you. Talk to Jason or Hyg or myself. We'd love to talk. If you are already a Christian, if at some point you came to Jesus in wholehearted faith, this passage is a call to renewal. All of us know that we need our hearts exposed. Again. So church, let's ask, ask Jesus to again expose our hearts and the things that we put in front of him. The ways we qualify our obedience or our devotion to him. Our disordered priorities. Ask him to expose, expose us.
Search our hearts. And let's look afresh to Jesus to see his beauty and worth that makes us let go of all those other things and say, yeah, they don't matter that much in comparison with Jesus. Let's ask the Spirit to help us see that he is better than every counterfeit God we have manufactured. To see that he is worth giving up everything for. To see that he is worth obeying and loving and trusting. As we step back and look at this, I want to say one last thing. All of this, from beginning to end, is God's grace towards us. It's Jesus' grace that exposes our disordered priorities. It hurts a little bit, let's be honest, right? But it's his grace that exposes our disordered priorities, that uncovers where we put some other love before Jesus. It's his grace that excludes that miserable path of halfwayism. And above all, it's his grace that invites us to himself. It's his grace that invites us to the forgiveness and rest and satisfaction that can only be found in him. Jesus, give us more of that grace. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we pray that you would search our hearts. That through your Spirit, you would show us what we've put before your Son, Jesus Christ. That you would open our eyes to see the futility, the, the lesserness, the, the insignificance of those things apart from Jesus in comparison with Jesus. And oh God, through your spirit, open our eyes to see the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. And lead us to give our entire selves to him in faith. Thank you for your grace. We depend on it with all we are. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.